0: Welcome to Flip the Script Podcast, War Stories. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, but he, nor so vile, this day shall gentle his condition, and gentle in England shall think themselves accused they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap whiles any speaks, that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. And that was from William Shakespeare. Today, we're going to be reading a section titled Hill 400 out of the book about face written by Colonel David H. Hackworth. There's a lot of lessons to be learned in here. If you know anything about Jocko Willock, he says that he learned most of his leadership principles from reading this book and that he would turn to this book to find leadership strategies. When he needed, he said that this book was very influential to him. So we're gonna we're gonna read through it. Uh, Hackworth, he served in Korea and in Vietnam. And when you read his story, his story is wild. Okay, it is completely wild. So we're just gonna read a little bit. I suggest go check it out yourself. This book itself is over 800 pages, so it's a long read, but it's it's very good. So all right, we're gonna kick it off. We're gonna flip the script. I never wanted to die but I never feared death either. I guess I always knew that the price of admission to life was one owed death. My father and mother both paid it before I was a year old. My uncle Roy, just eight years later, was lingering death from the mustard gas and other wounds he sustained in World War I. With me, I figured when it came, it would be with the roll of the dice. It was really a matter of luck and probability. The more missions, the more point duty, The more hot engagements, the higher the probability of getting zeroed out. And if you had to go, sure, you wanted to do it heroically. It was just returning to the front. And when you know what it was like to have hot steel ripping through your body and your wounds healed in a ward full of kids your age who might never walk, see, and think the same again. On the occasions, and there were a few, when death and I stood eyeball to eyeball, and the next few moments, I would be dead. I was always perfectly calm. There was no fighting, no raging to hanging on. I was always perfectly at peace. And almost inevitably, I'd think to myself, so this is the way it is. What an uninspiring way to go. In its way, it was a good feeling because then I'd settle back and rock into whatever was going on. Just as cool as ice. Men had been dying in battle for ages. What else is new? live fast and die young and have a good looking corpse was how I and the rest of the Raiders saw it along with John Derrick, who said it first in the 1949 movie, knock on any door. The only thing I could do was not worry about it at all and have the best damn time you could while you were around. Of course, being a leader helped. You were always too busy bringing in air and artillery, moving your people and shepherding your herd to take time to focus in on yourself. On where you might be in a moment's time. On the battlefield, you become very superstitious. You're always looking for something that's going to protect you from being killed. It might be a photo of a girl next door. It might be a rabbit's foot or a blanket. Yes, a security blanket, which you huddled under in the night. Phil Gilchrist was a white t-shirt and a blue band around the collar. He never went into battle without it. My chink, while him watched, might have become a lucky charm for me if it hadn't been knocked off in the hospital on February 6th, but as it was, I didn't need it or any other because I had an inside thing with God. I prayed all the time, but early on, I made a pact with myself. It was never, dear God, please look after me. It was always, dear God, please look after my men and make sure no one gets killed. See, as a leader, this is what he did. He didn't care about himself first. He cared about his men first. Those of you that are in leadership positions, whether in a business or in any organization really, if your focus is on your people above yourself, then you will be a good leader most of the time. If you care about your people and you put yourself after your men and women, then you're on the right track. All right, let's continue. So I suppose if I could have been objective about it, I would have realized that to lose men was just the break of the game but I built my little house of hope and God dwelled therein. Since I returned from the hospital after the 6th of February wound, which meant all of March until now, on the 1st of November, we have been in some really heavy combat, taking stacks of WIA, but among my men, we never taken any dead. The man and I were tight. We've got a tough job for you. It will be the hardest one your outfits had, Colonel Solon explained to me quietly. How many men have you got and how soon will you be able to jump off? Colonel Sloan's tough job was a raider assault on Hill 400, what the infantry school would never have called Key Terrain. It was a rocky volcano-shaped hill that sat aside the left boundary of a Wolfhound regiment, dominating the battlefield like a Spanish hilltop fortress. The enemy had occupied it for a long time. According to intelligence, there was no more than 15 Chinamen up there, but the enemy had burrowed deep into the hills of rocky slopes Despite all the tactics used or vast firepower employed, the wolfhounds could not secure the piece of ground. We were assured that it was not a kamikaze attack. Instead, Sloan said that it was critical and an operation perfectly tailored for our fleet-footed band of hill runners. Though I might have mentioned that this perfectly tailored operation had only been designed for the raiders after two or three different units of infantry had assaulted the hill taking extreme casualties in the process. I accepted the mission without comment, but my gut started to churn. 400 was a Jake Abel feeling all over again. We jumped off in three days. On the morning of the first day, key Raider leaders and I conducted a visual reconnaissance of Hill 400 from Item Company's forward outpost position on Hill 275. The OP was set on a gray knob of a mile from the front. With our objective about one half mile farther north along the ridgeline, for one thing, there was Ubius mines and booby traps, and before we even got near, for another, our objective was a formidable piece of real estate. The steep sides of the rear anchored surely by the Chinese main battle positions on hill 419 to the north. And the third thing was that there was only one avenue of approach. It would be a high diddle diddle right up the middle. Adam's company, grim-faced soldiers didn't help the forebodying feeling. They had a fugitive, hunted look about them. They all kept their heads down, moved fast, and didn't smile much. Everything about their hill reminded me of Uncle Roy's 1918 stories about Chattoo theory. The dugouts, the muddy slopes, the shell-ravaged trenches where brooding men were just waiting to overcome the rolling yellow clouds of mustard gas, or to be ordered to hurl themselves into machine gun fire tooling around in Raiders 1 had already shown me the sharp contrast between the lifestyles of the frontline troops and those located behind battalion forward. Bleak endless trenches versus all the comforts under canvas of the stateside built The Raiders were unusual. As a rule, the Army kept infantry have-nots far from the rear echelon haves, and though none of us felt guilty about the good life. We held behind the lines. I often wondered what fighters like these guys and Item thought when rotation came and they saw all they had been missing. The night Jimmy, Chris, and I left, Item's outpost for the closer look at the Chinese defense position on Hill 400, we'd all been around the fortress on previous operations and never had been able to find a weak point. And now we were up there, in for it, for almost six hours. Adam Company's guys, who'd previously attacked the hill, warned of, of an acute 82 millimeter and 120 millimeter mortar fire and damn tight offensive system. We disarmed a few mines, but nothing to get excited about. Found three outposts in the hill's southern nose, and behind that, a trench bunker system. But that was all. We still couldn't find Hill 400's Achilles heel. We returned to our camp and worked on the plan. On request, the artillery people have been punching the hell out of 400 with heavy 8-inch deadly stuff since we've gotten the warding owner, causing big sections of the enemy's beastwork to crumble in. But on the night itself, there would be no artillery preparation or illumination. Our initial attack would be by stealth. We'd knock off the OPs, move our deployment position, and after forming a line of skirmishers, hit the trenches. Only when the shooting started would supporting fires be brought in to clobber the Chinese reverse slopes, reinforcement routes, and likely mortar the artillery positions. Sloan approved the plan. He also told me he'd have a regimental forward aid station set up behind the outpost, a comforting thought, but one that did little to assuage my concern about the operation. It then reminding me that I was long overdue to go home, he added, I don't want any heroics up there, Dave. No heroics, I thought, right. Like telling Johnny Reb not to click his heels when Dixie was played. Besides, Just going up that hill was worth a double blue max for all of us. We briefed the troops. Every man knew exactly where he was to go and what he was to do when he got there. I guess Chris and I were snapping out orders and carrying on like real badass regulators in the hospital. A thousand years later, Sprinkler told me that's how the guys had known we were in for some deep crap. The rest of the Raiders rehearsed the operation and readied their gear. The boys looked good. I was pleased. moved up behind item under the control of darkness, the night before the raid. I didn't want to tip our hand, but I wanted my guys on the hill the morning so they could get a good look at 400 during daylight, then be rested and set to go first start. They had their look and then spread out among item's reserve slope bunkers. Caught some strut eye. A number of the guys wrote letters, some in earnest, some in jest, the latter group wrinkling them up and rubbing them in the dirt so that if they got zapped, Whoever was on the receiving end would know that life in the trenches was tough and war was hell. After a last look at the four bonding 400, I sacked out for the rest of the day. Unlike Jack Abel, I slept like a bear. The sun dropped out of the sky like an incoming round. Suddenly it was pitch black, the perfect night attack. No moon and a thick blanket of fog that settled over the battlefield. Jimmy moved first. His scout section was through the wire and gone without a sound. Jack Speed's squad was next followed by me, Don Neary, with his radio. Next, there was Bill Smith's and Tex Garvin's people. All was going just like rehearsed. For once, everyone had seemed to have gotten the word. No one fired at us from item. No flares were sent up to make us sitting ducks. The first hitch occurred just as I had cleared item's wire. Word was passed that the Raiders and Smith's squad was refusing to go a step further. I had Neary halt the infiltration column and I went back to find this guy hunkered down in the patrol path like a mule. Until now, he'd been a good man. He had at least a dozen raids under his belt, but now he wouldn't budge. He said he had it. He couldn't go on. I told him that his timing was off. He should have turned in his quiet slip before he left home and that his ass was going up that hill. Sobbing, he told me to get screwed. I hit him in both sides of his face with my pistol and said that there wasn't a Raider out here who wanted to go, but they'd all made the commitment and they'd gone through the wire. Boy wouldn't be moved. I pulled my trench knife out of my boot and laid it against his throat. I'd just as soon cut your throat as a F with you, I said. You either go on this raid or die. If I kill you, I report that you brought the farm in a big burst of glory. Make up your mind. After a few seconds between muffled sobs, he said he'd go. Gun- the crews of the three enemy OP must have forgotten the old soldier's creed. Stay alert, stay alive. Jimmy and his gang knocked them off with ease. We moved to the deployment line, then crept forward. One slow, quiet step after another, toe to toe, then heel, crush, not snap, taking more care than a minefield. All the raiders around me were now in, or entrenching the trench. A short way down... Tex Gavin made his first kill. He just finished putting his men into their attack positions and was standing just above the trench when the enemy soldier came strolling by. Garvin reached down, splattered the Chinaman's head with the butt of his weapon, and rolled him into an empty bunker. Meanwhile, I checked with Speed to see how his guys were doing. Everything was okay. Neri and I started creeping down the enemy trench line to where Speed and Smith's squads were tying in. Then I saw a Chinaman not more than four feet away. I froze, the guy standing in the trench, looking downhill with only his head sticking out. Difficult target for a knife or a grenade, and I didn't want to shoot him until we were really ready to go. But I couldn't see how I could get him or pass him silently. Neary covered me. I slipped my pistol out of his holster, laid my Thompson down, and started bellying along the top of the trench line definite heart and mouth stuff i was about a foot away from him when i came to the interesting realization that chinese centuries were no different from a lot of americans i knew he was fast asleep so it's interesting so they're going you know they're doing a night raid you know and so they come up he comes across the chinese troop he doesn't want to shoot him He's a little too far for a grenade he couldn't get it you know he couldn't do a knife attack he didn't want to shoot him either because then that would give away their position. They were doing a sneak attack. They were going, moving in silently at night. So obviously if he starts firing his weapon, that's going to wake everybody up. The Chinese are going to know. And then the battle is going to kick off, right? So as he said, it comes upon the Chinese guy and he's asleep. So let's continue. Let's flip the script. He never knew what happened. I grabbed him with one arm, covered his mouth, slipped his head back and cut his throat. Neary was at least six feet four and built like a fullback, moved up behind me and pulled the sentry out of the trench as if he were a feather pillow. He dragged him down the hill and stuffed him into a shell crater. Everyone was in place, and Forte's satchel charges were ready and waiting at sleeping bunker doors. Let's get this show on the road, was the word from Jack Speed. Jimmy Mayamore appeared in front of me. He whispered, Hack, I think we're going to have to change the plan. He reported that there were additional heavy fortified positions between the trench we were in and at the top of the hill. He hadn't found them on our reconnaissance. It would have been too risky to have gone beyond the trench. We could have blown the operation. Now Jimmy, roaming around as if he were on a Sunday picnic, had stumbled across them. They were unoccupied, but another scout, Bobby Evans, had gone into the large bunker and estimated at least 10 men in there. He set a tripwire grenade booby trap to nail them when they came out. Before I could reassess the battle plan, Hill 400 exploded. Evans dispatched four Chinamen who were moving down the connecting trench into one we occupied. His bar had barely started singing when every weapon on the line started hammering away. Forte ignited his satchel charges, and an earth-shattering roar shook the trench line as bunkers blew across the position. The remaining Chinamen in the immediate area didn't have a chance They were not trapped underground when Raider's grenades blew them sky high. Farther up the hill, the enemy were wide awake, now frantically firing in every direction. They hit nothing. We cracked their main line and not a casualty he reported so far. I was beginning to count on my Jack Abel premonition. This time, like the other, it was a false alarm. The hill was going to be a piece of cake. I told the boys to use regular daylight assault procedures. We fire and maneuver and blast our way up. Cordite hung heavily in the air, and Chris formed a reserve of Fortes and Maymore's people to look over our positions with the mission of guarding our ass. The prearranged artillery fire blistered the top ridge as Scaleline Lion kicked off our attack with two fiery blasts of his flamethrower. The raiders started slugging, but then the world fell in. The Chinamen always relied heavily on potato master grenades. Already, we'd policed looked like enough to give each enemy his own monogrammed case. The Chinamen always relied heavily on potato-masher grenades. Potato smashers didn't pack much punch in the open. They were virtually harmless firecrackers we'd learned to dance around and more or less ignore. The problem on Hill 400, though, was that the defenders weren't just throwing potato smashers. They were also firing frags. We hadn't counted on that. And as the sky was black with them... Many rolled down the hill and exploded out of range behind us, proving one of Chapman's pet theories over in George was actually safer up front doing the fighting than hiding behind where you became a sitting duck for grenades and incoming. But many found a raider's target. Smith's guys had a hard time. They took a number of casualties and couldn't gain an inch of ground until speed's fight thundered forward in a wild attack. These men overwhelmed one of the unexpected positions and now Speed's complete force was in there, mopping up, Price filtering back to me. We'd taken three dead and more than 20 wounded. It was just a nightmare. The wounds bubbled up in my brain. Almost to a man, the wounded Raiders refused to have the hill. Doc Brackman was performing miracles in his ever-growing field hospital in a shell hole behind the trench below. The kids determinedly returned to the fighting the minute they got patched up. Some like Jimmy, who'd already gotten shot in the ass and the arm, didn't even bother with patching. Everyone knew we were a lean outfit and that every gun counted. It was that family bonding again. No one was going to let his brothers down, especially in a fight like this, even at the cost of his life. So think about that. This guy, Jimmy, he gets shot. He gets shot in the butt, gets shot in the arm. And he even bother going to the field hospital to get patched up to go and return, he just decided to keep on fighting. He didn't want these guys didn't want to let their brothers and their left and the right of them down, and they stayed in the fight. It's part of the warrior mindset. Just because you get wounded doesn't mean that you're out of the fight. You continue to fight until you actually are either paralyzed or dead. Right? You keep on going, especially when life is on the line. You don't lay down. You don't give up. You don't give in. You don't. You could move tactically to a different position, but you keep fighting until the end. That is, uh, these guys, are, these guys are top notch. Our military today, they're guys, these guys are top notch. But for everybody who's not in the military, whoever's even law enforcement officers, firefighters, whatever it is, you're in the warrior. You're in the warrior profession. All right. You have to realize that this is not the movies. You don't get hit and then you're out. You don't get injured and you're out. Okay, you get injured, you could keep fighting until it's over. Until it's done, we keep on going. Especially as Hackworth said earlier, he worried about his men, right? So even if it's not about you, the people that you're with, your partners, think about them and them going home to their families. Forget about you for a second. How would you feel to have a burden on your conscience? That you didn't do everything that you could in a fight. That could have resulted in one of your partners going home to their family. But because you decided not to act, and now they're not. That's a heavy thing to have on your conscience. I'll never forget when I was in boot camp. I don't remember what building I was in. But I remember there was uh, paintings on the wall, like wall murals. And one of the things that was written in cursive, I remember, it said, let no man's ghost come back and say to you, if you only had done your job. That was something that was imprinted in my brain. And I said, wow, it's not about you. It's not preserving your own life. This is about the guys that you're with. And if everybody has that mentality that I'm not fighting for myself, I'm fighting for the guys I'm with, so that they could go home to their families, if everybody had that thought, you know, that's, that's what it's about. All right, so we're going to stop here for today, and we're going to continue in the next episode of Flip the Script, Podcast War Stories. So... I like this book. It's pretty interesting. It's got it's very exciting. Um, so hope that you like this, and I hope that uh, you will tune in to the next episode of War Stories on Flip the Script Podcast. If you liked it, hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, hit the share button, share it with your friends, and uh, we will see you next time. Flip the Script Podcast out.